but they, they're stories about how people live while they're dying, aren't they? They're actually stories about living. And I couldn't read the audiobook. I couldn't, I, I, I couldn't do it. I got an actress to do it. Thank God for Elizabeth Carling. She's absolutely superb. Because I couldn't read it without tears. Because it's all about how completely amazing human beings are when it really comes down to it and what struggles they will make and what things they will do for each other because it turns out that what matters most to us in the end isn't isn't actually death it's love and welcome to another episode of the Glam Reaper podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Muldowney, aka the Glam Reaper herself. And on today's episode, I am so excited, totally fangirling. I've been a fan of this lady for a long time and you've probably heard me mention her a gazillion times before on social media. Um, and I'm so, so, so excited that she is now my guest on the podcast. It is Dr. Catherine Mannix. And she needs probably no further introduction, but she has an incredible TED talk. She's written books. She's a palliative care doctor. And I just, I love all things that she, that comes out of her mouth. So I'm really excited to get into this. So Catherine, welcome. Oh, Jen, thank you so much for inviting me. It's so lovely to be with you. You're just, oh, so for anybody who I guess doesn't know, um, well, for me, you, you, so you've written more than one book, but there's one that stands out for me which is with the end in mind. And I, I talk about it all the time. I know you've just got a new book out that came out sort of during COVID and you'll tell us a little bit about that. Um, it just, the book for me, so I work in the funeral mm-hmm. space and because of that, a lot of people assume I'm okay with death and that I'm okay with dying and that, you know, all of the, the, the things are, are okay. And... I'm not necessarily, you know, just because I'm a funeral planner, so event planner, but for funerals. Um, and I work with people who have passed away and people who are grieving and bereaved. It doesn't mean I'm any more ready for my life to be over or for anything like that. And I actually did always have this fear of what would it be like. And reading your book, uh, and I was reading it as a part of research um, into what I do. It just happened to be one of the books that I actually took out from the library at the time. And I just, I can't recommend it enough to people who are worried about about death or about dying because it just gave me such comfort. Um, and and I, I want to hear your take on it. But for me, when I describe people to people, it's, it's there's just a series of breaths and it's 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 just a, a letting go of a of a breath is what I kind of took from it, um, and I actually only reread it again recently. Um, the stories are just so incredible, and uh, and I get emotional even just thinking about some of them. Um, but yeah, it just it just gave me peace, a peace that I'd never known before I read the book. And it's not the easiest book to read because of the topic that's in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm I'm trying to get I want my mum to read it, but she's she's having difficulty with it because I think a lot of people do. Um, but tell me, is what what's your what would you sum sum up? I guess dying to be if if somebody said you know you have to sum it up, okay. not in one book. Well, I guess oh, what you've just said that that that's really lovely, and I guess that that for me that says well job done 
that that book is doing the work that it kind of got sent out into the world to do. And just to pick up your introduction, because it's really interesting that it sounds to me like we're two sides of the same coin where I'm really familiar with the approach into dying. And the more I see of it, the less I fear it, the less I fear it for myself and for the people that I love. And yet I was always very anxious that I wasn't comfortable in the company of bereaved people. You know, in palliative care, you know, you can put me in that room where that person is dying and I know how to be, what to do. I'll notice the person who's hanging back and I'll try to help them to work out what's making them feel reluctant to be closer to this person who they really love who's about to die what can we do that helps them to feel engaged and involved enough that they won't wish that they'd acted differently afterwards you know um or you know if the person perhaps doesn't look comfortable and people should be comfortable as they're dying it's an important message that we ought to be able to manage symptoms so that people are not having what they imagine is going to be their worst day um and we'll be honest here, you know, it's not going to be your best day, but but you will have had worse days that the kind of yeah. symptom management that runs alongside understanding that somebody's out reaching the end of their life is what palliative care is all about. It's not really about the dying. It's about the comfort. Um, so So people should be comfortable and their families should be able to engage and be with them and talk to them and comfort each other around that bed so I'm, I'm strangely at peace in that space and then the person dies and then the family is plunged into this space where their life is apparently the same but this linchpin person is is completely missing and you see this all of the time and I feel useless I've got nothing I'm uncomfortable I don't know how to be, I haven't got any jobs to do, and I really don't like that. So so it's really interesting, isn't it, that I, at that point, hand over to people who say, yeah, okay, I'm comfortable in this space. I get that grieving people can't be made better, that it's not an illness, it's a condition that's part of life, it's part of love and loss, and I can be in that space with them and facilitate them to move through the processes that they've got to observe for registering a death, organising a funeral, all, all the other things. And then all those people who work in grief and bereavement who are able to hold space because we know, don't we, that bereavement, grief, lasts as long as love lasts. And since you would rather hope that the love will last forever, then sadly that also means that in some shape or form the grief will also last forever so I've been doing homework about getting more comfortable on the other side of death and I love that your book that, that your reading of my book has made you more comfortable on my side of death if you like yeah isn't that lovely and it's, you know it's so lovely and it's so fascinating to me because you know I, I've only been doing this I wasn't born into it or anything um I I came through to us through loss myself and um, but it's been interesting because people often say, I don't know how you do what you do. And I just have this feel, whatever you believe in, God, the universe, you know, or there's nothing or whatever it is that your beliefs are. I I believe that we're we're all put here 
on a path or or in a place to do certain things. And this was absolutely my calling, without a doubt. And I don't know how you could do what you do. And I don't know how, like I've often made this comment. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Bridesmaids. Yes. Um, so, and when she's in the car and she has all the puppies in the back, like that's literally me. If I worked in a, in a pet adoption facility, I'd be like, they're coming home with me. There's no way. They're like, you know, I'm just, I could not work in a facility with children where they were ill or, um, and I think each of us has this part of us that, that is, is here to help. And so it is, it's so fascinating that we're coming from two yeah. sides of the coin, as you said. And it's, yeah, it's just, I mean, each story in that book, it's such an emotional book. And let me tell you, for anybody who hasn't read it and who's listening, it is an emotional book. It's beautiful, though. And and you can pick it up and put it down and do one story at a time. And I just think it's it's such an important book for people who have any sort of a fear and any of my families I work with on the pre-planning side where maybe we've done mom's funeral and now they, you know, they're super comfortable with me. So they kind of want to plan dad and maybe dad, um, you know, isn't doing so well. And now they're worried and, you know, they talk to me because you do become part counselor and therapist. Um, I always recommend your book because I just think it, it gives such peace because for me, it, it nearly wasn't even my own death. I, I was scared of that, but I was more scared of my parents and I don't want to get emotional now because they're still alive. But I know that day will come and it's, yeah, just to know that they would. And there was even, and I'm actually going to read this because I think it's just so beautiful. There was um, a review you got um, about a book um, and he just, he said, you know, I got I like that. He said it took him a long time to read, mainly because he had to put it down often to digest it. Um, and he said, you know, modern society does not talk about death enough. We tend to hide from the inevitable rather than understand it. And this book shines a light on what comes to us all. And then he said, which I thought was incredible, on a personal note, it helped him put to bed something that has been plaguing him for a quarter of a century when he was in hospice when his mother died. And for 25 years, he thought that she'd been struggling and fighting for breath at the end and it had haunted him. And now he knows that that's not the case. I mean, that's astonishing, isn't it? I I, I cried. That, that review went up on Amazon just a few weeks ago and I just sat yeah. and wept for those 25 tortured you, years when nobody yeah. explained to him at the bedside of his dying mom what he was watching and hearing so you asked me to yeah. explain the process and then I diverted into something else so let's just go there for a moment um yeah, and that's okay and this is where my okay and this is where everybody gets up and puts the kettle on instead of listening so it's it, it, so yeah. it's not too not too terrible so Here's the thing, that as we get towards the end of living and go into the process of dying, it's a bodily process, just like all the other bodily processes we've got. So just how um, a, a person giving birth for the very first time, their body knows what to do. This process of dying, really like giving birth, is a series of different changes that happen in more or less the same order in more or less every person. And that helps us, just like midwives with a woman in labour, it helps us to be able to think, oh, this is where this person is up to now. This is where this dying is up to now. And so we can, and I believe we should, and we have a responsibility to talk to 
the beloved people around that bed and explain exactly what's going on all the way through, just like a midwife does for the person in labor and their birth partner. They've done all of the prep in advance. They've had the conversations that say, you know, this is what's going to happen. And I will ask you to, you know, breathe in a particular way or push or not push. And you need to listen to what I'm saying. So let's practice it now. And then on labor day, people know, know what to do. I think we should be midwifing death in the same way. Preparation up front. So when we come to that day, we're not telling people for the first time, we're reminding them of stuff we've already talked about. And this is the stuff. Towards the very end of somebody's life, they are coming in and out of unconsciousness. They have no control over that. Some of the time they'll be asleep because sleep recharges our energy batteries and that sleep is really important. So if people feel like, you know, they're really tired all of the time, they're spending quite a lot of time asleep, and there are important conversations to have, have a snooze. Have a snooze first and then try and have that conversation. Otherwise, you might run out of energy halfway through. And as time goes by, people are sleeping for longer, they're awake for less time, and eventually they're just drifting into deep unconsciousness. Once your brain is completely unconscious, there's only two bits of it that seem to still be doing anything. Interestingly, one of those is hearing, that it seems that we can still respond to sound and still hear sound. We don't know how much people can make sense of sound by that stage. But we always tell families to keep talking, play the person's favourite music, let them hear your voices. And we see people just looking calmer when the right voices are in the room. But the other thing, bit of the brain that's doing all the work now is the bit that manages our breathing. Uh, its technical name is the respiratory centre. It's deep down in the back at the bottom of the brain, just above the top of the spinal cord. So it's a really primitive part of the brain. It doesn't do any thinking or reflecting or having ideas. It just drives cycles of breathing. So most of our lives, we don't even think about our breathing. But you're thinking about your breathing now, aren't you? Yeah, and everybody who's listening is thinking about their breathing. Okay, so we don't normally think about our breathing. But actually, everybody at the moment is managing their breathing. So I'm managing my breathing so that I can breathe in. And I've got a microphone just under my chin, so I need to breathe in in a way that doesn't make some terrible noise that terrifies everybody. And I'm breathing in enough that I can breathe out in a controlled way that says a sensible phrase or two before I pause to take the next breath, and so on. In the meanwhile, everybody else who's listening is managing their breathing so they're not distracted by noises of their breathing in the back of their throat. So you know how when there's something coming on the radio, you're waiting for an announcement, you're waiting for a football score, and you almost hold your breath. And that's probably partly so that the noise of our breathing doesn't distract us from hearing the thing that we're waiting to listen to. So we don't think about thinking about our breathing, but we do quite a lot of the time actually manage our breathing without really thinking about it. The unconscious brain, nothing is managing the breathing now apart from that respiratory centre. So the breathing does something that we wouldn't normally see. These are automatic cycles of breathing. They go from being very deep to gradually more and more and more shallow. 
they go from being quite fast to gradually slower and slower and slower. Sometimes you might have that fast breathing at a shallow phase. Well, if you see a person you love lying in bed and they're breathing fast, but it's not very deep, if you didn't know any better, you would think that they were fighting for breath, that they were breathless, that they were panting. So the midwives around the deathbed, the death wives, if you like, need to be explaining that this is breathing that we see in people who are deeply unconscious, who are way beyond feeling bodily discomfort. There are other times when the breathing might be slower, but because we can't feel what our body's doing anymore, we might have our vocal cords just a little bit tense. And so you breathe out through your vocal cords and it makes a noise. And it's it's almost like a, a, an out-breath snore. You know, because snoring is normally an in-breath, but it's a kind of... Okay, well, if you haven't heard that before and you love this person, well, what are they trying to say? Are they distressed? Are they moaning? What's going on? So again... The death wives need to be saying, oh, this breathing, this sound, we see this in deep unconsciousness. And how do I know this person's unconscious? Well, because of another noise they're making. If you think about one of the most sensitive parts of our body is the back of your throat. It's been designed so that it protects our airway. So if anything touches the back of your throat and, you know, toast crumb, drop a coffee going down the wrong way, whatever it is, we know immediately we start coughing, heaving and retching to clear it. So let's just go and have a look at this person on their deathbed, deeply unconscious, lying on their back and listen to this weird, gurgling, rattling noise that their breathing is making from time to time. So it isn't all of the time and it doesn't happen in every person, but it happens often enough that we should be talking about it. This is the sound of air moving in and out of the airway and it's moving through a little bit of liquid. The little bit of liquid is probably about a teaspoon of liquid and it's lying at the back of the throat and the person isn't coughing, isn't gagging, isn't trying to clear their throat because they can't feel it. And if they can't feel that most sensitive part of their body, they're almost certainly not feeling other discomforts from other bits of their body. So where's that fluid come from? Well, it'll be little bits of saliva from their mouth. It might be the fluid that we've used for cleaning somebody's mouth and keeping it fresh. It might be bits of phlegm that have trickled down from the back of the nose or been coughed up from the lungs. Sorry, folks. But just, you know, a tiny little bit of fluid making an enormous amount of noise. And the fact going, oh my God, what is that noise? That sounds awful. Is he suffering? Is he drowning? Is his throat closed over? Is he choking because there's stuff down the back of his throat? So no, let's just stop and listen to the noise. It's regular. It's with every breath. The breath is going in. The breath is coming out. Nothing is stopping the breath. The lungs are working. The breathing is happening. The person is deeply unconscious and not clearing their throat. So that death rattle noise that distresses us all so much actually is a sign that this person is deeply, safely unconscious. And instead of us getting all het up about it, really, perhaps we need to be reminding each other that, yeah, dad is making that weird noise. 
because actually he's deeply unconscious, he's completely safe, he's way beyond feeling distressed. It's weirding all of us out. Maybe we need to sing, We maybe we need to put the radio on, maybe we need to play his terrible rock records, whatever, whatever. Maybe we need to make the sound less obvious in the room, but it's not bothering Dad, and we need to remember that it's not bothering Dad. And then during one of those phases, usually when it's slow breathing, possibly when there's long pauses, usually when it's not very deep breathing, but again, you know, there are exceptions to this too, there will be a breath out that just isn't followed by another breath in. So that's really so not Hollywood, isn't it? The Hollywood last breath comes with special effects and violins, but it also often comes with sitting up, regaining consciousness, telling people where the treasure is buried or which of the children actually wasn't really ever theirs in the first place or, you know, dramatic stuff. Because Hollywood's using dying as a device. It's not really about the dying person. It's about what happens to the people around the bed. But actually, in ordinary dying, almost never does the person suddenly regain consciousness and say something. But very, very rarely they do. Almost never do they open their eyes and smile at everybody, but very, very occasionally they do. So if we've got important stuff to say, do not save it for the last Hollywood moment when you think the person's going to suddenly regain consciousness because you're going to be so disappointed like uh, 998 times in a thousand. Let's say what matters while we still can. So if there are people who we love and we think, you know, I really should tell that person, but perhaps I'll wait until they're completely unconscious. Um, it's, have another think about that. Have another it, think. That's, I mean, Catherine, I could listen to you all day. I mean, it's just, it's just such a, I think it's just such a gift um, to people, your book. I, it's just hearing that, um, it's just, it's such a scary thing. I mean, what is it they say? People are sca scared of, of dying and then public speaking. Isn't that the two things, you know? Which, <laughs> you know so I, what I, are I, we I, about? Hello, Ted Talkers who work in the dead space. I don't know. We're just some anomalies. Um, but I just think it's the, that, that breath in, I just, you know, and, and that's, you know, or the breath out, sorry, and, and, and just not the final breath out. I just think it just, it's not Hollywood. It's not, you know, lights, camera, action and the violin playing, but it's still just so, it's like everything, I guess, how much we overthink everything in our heads and we our fears, that's really our fears. I mean, I'm terrified of spiders, terrified. Now, I mean, really, why do you, like, and I have conversations with them. Like I, I literally, you know, if one is in my house, I'm like, why did you come into my house? You know, now I have to kill you and all that sort of stuff. And I have conversations with them. But like, really, if I if I stood outside of myself, my own fear, what has the creature going to do to me? You know, it's all overthinking. It's just that's what our fears are about. And I just think your book and because of the way it's divided, I think, into the stories as well. Um, It's just it does it in a palatable way. You know, it's it's bearable and it, it brings your emotion and you talk about the different journeys um that e that each of the different cases go on and 
yeah, I just think it's it's just so lovely. I think it's just such a gift to give to people that, I mean, it is. It's such a fear of everyone. And I feel more prepared for my own. I feel more prepared for my parents' one. Uh, it's, yeah. That, that is lovely I just, to I hear. Can't. I mean, there's a reason that I chose stories. Because I could have written a yeah. kind of bullet point list, textbooky kind of book. Yeah, yeah. Um. And the reason I chose stories was I was thinking back to my my grandmother. My grandmother was born in 1900. And so that was handy because we always knew how old she was going to turn in the April of each year because it was the same as the number of the year. And so she was really familiar with dying and death because when she was a teenager and in her 20s and the 19-teens and the 1920s, you know, she was a she was one of the older girls in a big family, and she would have helped when family or friends were so sick that they were dying. The hospital didn't have anything to give to dying people. People died at home, and their family and their neighbours tended to them. So she will have been part of that. She'll have been shown what to do and had things explained to her by her own mum and by her aunties. And she almost certainly expected that in time she would pass on all of that knowledge and wisdom to her daughters yeah so what happened well then in the 1930s by the time she was in her mid-30s one of her children had died of an illness that we you know routinely immunize children against now diphtheria and her husband had died of sepsis when his appendix burst so there she is she's attended lots of deathbeds her child has died She's a widow. She's got four other children. That's the same experience that women had had about dying and death for hundreds of years. But in the background, there were kind of social improvements going on in the 20th century. Immunizations were starting. Um, the conditions in which people lived were better sanitized. And so the age at which people were dying started to rise so life expectancy for baby girls born in 1900 in England was 46 by the age of 46 half of those girls were expected to have died and the the other half would be dying over ever so long so by the time she was 46 the second world war had just finished 1946 and two years later here the National Health Service started. I became a consultant in palliative medicine in 1995. She was alive to see that. Wow. And a couple of years later she said to me that she was a little bit worried about what might happen when she was dying. And I thought, okay, this is this is an interesting conversation that I never expected to have with my nana. <laughs> so what's the what? so what's the worry then, nana? You know, I'm not worried about doing the dying. So I've seen plenty of that. That's okay. I know that's going to be okay. <laughs> I'm worried about your mum and your auntie and your uncles because I don't think they've ever seen anybody die. What? And it just came home to me like this this kind of thunderclap in my head that in the space of a single generation, that's my parents' generation, the people of wealth, for, 
from my purposes, England, but actually for our purposes, the whole of the, the rich industrial nations of the world who had modern health care had shifted dying into hospitals because there'd been such fantastic medical advances. You know, antibiotics became available that would have saved my grandfather's life had they been available when he was so sick. Um, ventilators, organ transplantation, better anaesthetics. He could do longer surgeries. He could get more done, better cancer treatments. People weren't dying of things that they used to stay home and die of. They were rushed into hospital where a lot of them had their lives saved for the time being, of course, because we didn't actually cure death. But we started to take people sick enough to die into hospital and expect that health services would step up and sort it all out. And of course, they very often did. So that was fantastic. But it also meant that dying didn't happen at home. Family and friends didn't do the looking after, didn't see the stages, didn't witness what was going on. And all of that knowledge and wisdom was lost. So when I was thinking about how my Nana got to understand it, I realised that she got to understand it by watching it and then watching it again and then watching it again. And each time she watched it, she saw what was individual for that person and what was the same each time she saw it in the same way as when we're looking after women in labour. The stuff that's about this woman, this pregnancy, this labour, this family, and then there's labour, same old, same old. Yeah? So I thought maybe the way to tell people about dying, maybe the way to give the wisdom back is to help people to understand it the way Nana learned to understand it, by just seeing it over and over and over. And also the way that she saw it was she was looking after people because they were alive. They might have been dying, but it was the fact that they were still alive that made people look after them. So those stories, even though all but one ends in a death, I think I think all but one person's dead by the end of the book. Spoiler! Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think you kind of, you kind of, when you're signing up to the yeah, book, you're yeah, kind of may, maybe you know that. But, yeah. But they're stories about how people live while they're dying, aren't they? They're actually stories about living. And I couldn't read the audiobook. I couldn't, I, I, I couldn't do it. I got an actress to do it. Thank God for Elizabeth Carling. She's absolutely superb. Because I couldn't read it without tears. Because it's all about how completely amazing human beings are when it really comes down to it and what struggles they will make and what things they will do for each other because it turns out that what matters most to us in the end isn't isn't actually death it's love yeah yeah and they you know when i'm talking to a grieving family that are you know it's usually not a grieving family it's usually one or two of the the family mm. members that are really overwhelmed with the grief and just saying something as simple as grief is literally just showing how much love you had for this person. It's just the love has just taken a different form. And that's, you know, as in the love doesn't go away, but it's just it's now showing itself in grief. And isn't that the most incredible thing in the world to show how much you loved this person? And, and when I say that, it doesn't always mean wailing 
and crying and you know oh because my sister is crying and my brother is not crying he must have loved mom enough that's not what it is and and I actually this is my, my TED talk was about it, that it's not about judging oh you're doing it this way so that's incorrect grief is a million things to everyone it's 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 anger one minute it's frustration the next minute it's breaking down crying it's laughter it's doing it privately it's doing it publicly it's doing it in a group it's doing it solo it's it's a million different things and the sooner we take that judgment oh, of you're so you, you're and so I right I mean I love I love your TED talk and I love your costume because actually oh. I've got a very similar costume obviously it's what I wear all the time too but but it's not a competition is it grief is not a competition no yeah yeah it's and you know i have to say since moving to new york i'm i'm over here 9 years now and i'm back and forth um but since moving to new york and working with um i'm very blessed in what i do but i've worked with some notable and some wealthy families and stuff and sometimes i do there is that competition of of sort of who's crying more and there you know for show for show it can be and sometimes it's for the media and it breaks my heart to be honest because it's just it's not about that and you know there could be one person who's remained stoic in the entire funeral process and they could privately on their own fall apart or you know laughter be how they it's it's just it doesn't matter it's we all just do it completely and utterly differently. And um, yeah, like New York is definitely a, a really interesting place to do what I do because you see so many different facets of humanity, honestly. I mean, you see it in every city in the world, but it, I feel like here there's just so much extremities and um, and a lot of people wearing their heart in their sleeves or, or you know, showing it. Um, it's just it's a very fascinating place. But um it's yeah I just I think the way you've done you've done the book I think with it's it, the stories are just so beautiful and really and truly and I don't I don't want to give any spoilers away but I do want to hear about the second book so if you want to tell our listeners a little bit about that um and also what's next wow, so second book, I feel like a serial offender so I I really I really didn't intend to write another book I, I didn't really think I was ever going to write our book at all um but there, but there we are that happened and and um that was that was an unexpected thing that I, I i wanted to do something about public understanding of dying i was taking early retirement from my clinical practice to make the space to do something and i didn't know what the something was going to be but you you'll know this when you're so busy day by day almost like being a hamster in a wheel isn't it how can you stop and look and get your head up and see what you could do differently so I took early retirement, which was a bit of a scary thing to do. And then on the, the, in the last week that I was at work, I was phoned at work by the BBC. Now, that doesn't happen to a girl every day. Um, and it was BBC Radio 4, which in the UK is our big... Um, usually current affairs it's our talk radio station but it's usually our serious talk radio station and they wanted me to come and talk to somebody who was terrified of dying and they'd heard that I was an expert on death and it was just a kind of recommendation by a friend thing you know it was one of these extraordinary events anyway 
since I promised myself that any opportunity that came up, even if it was terrifying, I was just going to say yes. I said yes and was completely terrified. But I did this thing and it was a really interesting thing to do. And one of the things that we talked about during that interview was how we deal with denial, you know, when people really don't want to face a difficulty. And I told a story about a young woman that's also one of the stories in the book, a young woman who I looked after, first of all, when I was a cancer doctor, and then who came back into my care again when I was a palliative care doctor. Um, and I, I then was, you know, off work thinking, how can I do this? What can I do? Could I write newspaper articles? Uh, what, what's a podcast? You know, this so this would be about 2016. And I was contacted by a literary agent, by a book agent, to say, I heard you on the radio. So the broadcast had gone out, of course, because it was recorded as part of a series. I heard you on the radio and you told a story. Have you got any more stories? I've, you know, have I got any more stories? I've got thousands of stories. I said, have you ever thought about writing a book? And just as he said it, I thought, oh, oh, that's that's how you get stories out into the public domain. You write a book. So um, so he got me a writing contract. That's how the first book came about. So that was already so unlikely. Yeah. Um, and then more unlikely things started to happen. So the first thing was that he talked, he, he got me to write a proposal and he talked to different publishers and then he got back in touch with me to say, I've, I've got 16 publishers who are interested in your book. Okay, so that doesn't happen. Um, and so eventually I chose a publisher who I thought really understood what I was trying to do and, and they are giving a percentage of their profits from each book to an end-of-life charity here in the UK. So my British publishers are doing that and that's fantastic. And Little Brown in the USA also said, OK, yeah, we, we'll take the same text that you're using in the British um, book and we, we'll sell it over here. And it's done very well in the USA and Canada as well. So and that was it. I thought, OK, my work here is done. And then the messages started coming in because the next unlikely thing was that this book became a bestseller. That, you know, it's a book of stories about dying. What's going on here? It became a bestseller. It's been translated into 16 languages. Uh, it was shortlisted for a literary prize. And it just got more and more and more unlikely. So I've almost got to the stage now where I've stopped being surprised by things because, you know, the next crazy thing is, is just waiting around the corner. So how fantastic to get that message out there and of course the book being successful then leads to other invitations and you meet other lo lovely people like meeting you and so it kind of it's like ripples in a pond that just keep on getting wider and wider but that was it I'm, I've, I've done enough now that, that that's it and then the letters started and some of the letters were the sorts of things that you've been talking about people who've been afraid who felt by knowing more that they were less afraid or people who've been traumatized by not understanding those sounds the end of life and suddenly realizing that their dear person who they thought had been really suffering and struggling had almost certainly been deeply unconscious making those unconscious breathing noises 
and it doesn't make the grieving any easier, but it takes some of the trauma out of the memory of the events. Hooray. So that's what I'd set out to do. But there was a whole load of other messages that I just hadn't expected, which were about, okay, you've convinced me we have to talk about this stuff. But oh my good God, how do you start a conversation like that? What if I get into trouble? What if I upset people? What if they don't want to? Or, you know, dear Dr. Mannix, I'm dying and my family won't let me talk about it. What can I do? Um, I, I only want to talk about my funeral. I only want to talk about my will. I want to tell people that I don't want to go into hospital. I, don't, I want to tell people I don't want to die in the family home. Whatever it was. And I thought, hmm. I've got quite a lot to say about conversations and the way we communicate with each other, because clearly I've been enabling that within families for a very long time. And with my cognitive therapy practice, the psychotherapy practice gives me insights into lots of other bits of human life as well. So I went back to my publishers, who'd been desperate for another book, and I'd be going, no, no, there's no, no other book. To say, like, yeah, I think there might possibly be another book. Here. Oh, marvellous, marvellous, hooray, hooray. But not about death. You go, okay, that's awkward because you know you do remember what I write about, yeah. But in fact, I think I think my editor, my editor in, in, in Britain is, is called Arabella and she's fantastic. And what she said was don't exclude dying and death, but make it across the lifespan. Give us examples of parenting and examples from school and examples from your psychotherapy practice and examples from training people and running your um, your intensive care service you know make it applicable across the whole of life of course she's absolutely right to do that so all of these letters are about if I can just give this person a really good talking to you can sort it out and I know that you know and I know that a lot of people who are listening to us know that actually it isn't about a talking to at all, that the secret of really good conversations is how well we listen to each other. So I knew from the get-go that the book was going to be called Listen, because that's the core thing that makes conversations work. And I got the, um, the contract to write the book in, December, in January of 2020. Uh-huh. Uh, and I was going to deliver the book in December of 2020. So 12 months to write a book. You know, what? Yay! Yay! And, and in the meanwhile, oh my Lord. So my job is to try and distill out these really complicated conversations. And what are the essential components of them? And how do we get ourselves into a space where we can be alongside a person who's distressed and not interfere, but support? And just about the time that I thought what I really need to do is drill down into the components of these conversations, we were watching COVID sweeping through Italy. It was starting to arrive here in Britain. We were approaching our lockdown. And I thought, I can't just sit at home writing a book while people are dying in their droves and they're being looked after by people who've got no idea how to look after dying people because the people who know how to look after dying people are already doing that, but there are too many dying people. What an extraordinary time. So I, uh, I went 
back to the NHS leads for end of life care and said, you've got to give me a job. I, you know, I can't sit here. And they said, great, could you devise a communication skills framework for people who've never looked after dying people because they're having to phone families, couldn't even meet them? You know, it was all the, all the visiting restrictions. How do they break unwelcome news? How do they explain what's happening? How do they listen to those people's questions? How do they facilitate those conversations? And, you know, some of these were kids who'd been medical students two months ago registered as newly qualified doctors. Some of them were, one of, one of the wards that was looking after people who were dying in our city and people who were not going to be, they didn't have the lung function to be able to benefit from going on a ventilator. So they were already so sick that almost certainly they weren't going to survive. Some of them did, but most of them wouldn't. Being looked after by nurses that included the nurses that usually were changing the dressings in the outpatient clinics for people who had recent surgery. You know, completely no experience to bring to this. So it was a fantastic job to be given. And it made me have to dissect those conversations and think about those conversations. So then I went back to work in the National Health Service for another few months, doing staff support and teaching communication skills. So by the time I came back out of that in the autumn, with like four months left to write the book. <laughs> in fact, I'd been doing the practical for the last six or seven months. And that had been an absolute boon for me in making me strip away all of the stuff and work out what is it that really matters. What, and it's about attention and kindness and compassion. And it's not about the words, is it? It's about, well, my Aunt Angelou said it, people will not remember the words you said. They will remember the way you made them feel. Made them feel. Yeah. Now, can I, I mean, I could, as I keep saying, I could talk to you all day, but I know you have a time schedule and I'm sure our listeners as well. Um, on that note and on, on that book, um, what would, I'm very much proactive in, and I only just had a morning meeting this morning, um, with a group where I'm always trying to encourage people to pre-plan. And even if it's, you know, five things, if you decide burial or cremation, if you decide your funeral song, if you decide, you know, just your top five, you don't have to go through. I have a PDF that I, I send out for free to, to people. I do workshops on it for free. You know, I'm, I just think it's so important and it's such a gift to give to your family to put this document together. It's not legally binding, but it just What's your wishes on paper for your family to deal with their grief and not have to deal with the logistics and trying to figure out what would mom want? Um, so on that in that vein and and your incredible book, um, what would maybe two things, two or three things that you think you could say to people who want to have that conversation, who are listening to this and are probably going to get your books, I hope. Um, but that they want to have this pre-planning conversation, what would you, how would you tell them to broach this subject? And it could be a parent who's dying or it could be a perfectly healthy parent, maybe if we can Oh, fantastic question. So the first thing is, when you know there's a conversation that you want to have, but it feels a little bit daunting, and it's kind of a double daunt because it's not just that you've got to have the conversation, it's that you've got to mention the thing that you hardly dare to mention 
in order to let the other person know that you even want to have the conversation, yeah? So I would break those into two separate things. And the first thing is just to have, just to issue an invitation. Mom, Dad, there's this thing that keeps going through my mind. Or I, I, heard this, I heard this absolutely brilliant podcast last week or, you know, heard this thing on the radio, saw something on the telly. There's been a news on, uh, on the news channels. It's just got me thinking. When the time comes that I might have to step up and make decisions for you about your health because maybe you're not well enough to make those decisions, or after you've died, unless you're immortal and you haven't told me, um, I just worry that I might need to know what you want and I just don't have a clue. And it's really worrying me. If there's some point where you think you could just maybe give that 10, 15 minutes where we could chat about it, it would really make me feel better. And what that's doing is not talking out. It's, it's not taking control. It's keeping our parents parental rather than infantilizing them. Now, come on now, Mum. You know we need to talk about this. It's, it's being respectful, isn't it, and maintaining the relationship but it's also using the fact that this parent or for some of his, it's, you know, dear other older relatives or family friends. I don't know whether they have the same tradition in the United States that we have here, where I've got several aunties who are friends of my parents, but I'm not actually related to them. But I'm yeah. definitely going to be involved in stuff towards yeah. the end of their lives. <laughs> They've known me since I was born. So... <laughs> you know these are conversations of love and respect so so my first tip is make it an invitation and explain to them how they will be helping you by allowing you to have this conversation with them and That's although brilliant. certainly they will want to help us more than they don't want to have the conversation so that's the first thing. Yep. The next thing is plan when you're going to have it and promise that it won't be for more than 15 minutes and have something really lovely to do afterwards planned. So for me, that would be tea and cakes. Um, but it might be just looking through the old family photograph albums or it might be, you know, taking them out for a drive somewhere or them taking you out somewhere, whatever. Or even go and do it in a cafe somewhere with a lovely view and after 15 minutes you've finished and you're just going to be in the place and, and enjoying what you're doing and then Pardon? the most important thing I think is you ask your question and you just shut up and listen just it's not about you just be quiet just be quiet and listen you hear absolutely nice. respect the ratio and the thing yeah. is that the more we listen, the more astonished we'll be by how much they've probably already thought about it, the ideas they've got, the people who they actually are underneath that husky parental shell. Their inner teenager still lives in there. Their inner child still lives in there. That person who changed your diapers is still in there. And... They love you, probably, and you love them, probably. And when it's an already an awkward relationship, maybe that's the hardest of all, because then we have to kind of suspend our judgment and suspend and and forgive 
their previous mistakes and misdemeanors with us in order to be on the right page for this really, really important conversation. So I, I, I call them tender conversations rather than challenging or difficult. And I think yeah. we take our tenderness instead of our lists or our insistence or our protective, you know, protective armour. Just go into it with tenderness and take, take some tissues because there might be so yeah. much love in this conversation that somebody's eyes leak and that's okay. Yeah, the, the lovely. I love that. And it's funny because I, whenever I'm asked that question, um, you and I are so very much aligned. So whenever I'm asked that conversation, uh, I always will sort of say, blame me, you know, like yeah. that. I, oh my God, I was at a meeting this morning and they were talking, there was this crazy lady, her nickname was the Glam Reaper. And they were talking about funeral planning. But so what would you do? She did ask, you know, and so and bring it up in a bit of a natural way. But what I loved about what you just told me, which I never, um, which now I'm kind of going to add in, which I never did, was that use that light way to bring it up, but don't don't force the conversation then or don't sort of tackle it at that point because you don't know where their head's at or they could be in the middle of a task or something or maybe it's dinner or whatever. But use it to invite for it to be a conversation at a later date. And I kind of love that, that invitation, because then they can um, prepare themselves mentally for it being, okay, it's going to be 15 minutes. We're going to talk about this. This is scary for me, but it's something that she wants to talk to us about. And I think, um, so I kind of, I love that. Um, and then who doesn't love a treat yeah. at the end? I mean. And the other thing is place your bets about whether they'll stop at 15 minutes. Because the other thing that you and I both know is that the conversations once you've started are just so much more interesting, joyful, meaningful than you ever could have imagined. Um, so if all you do is 15 minutes, you're winning already, but I bet you'll do more than 15 minutes. 100%. And I even, I only said it at my talk this morning. I said, if, if nothing else, you find a burial or cremation and their funeral song, I guarantee you, those two questions will unpeel a million other layers of the onion and they'll start to tell you why they pick that song and it'll just open up this lovely lovely like box of memories i i always talk about you know my favorite slash it was a very difficult pre-plan i did with my mom and again she's perfectly healthy and living but we cried we laughed because we were, were so close but what I realized, and this was years ago, back when I started, but what I realized, and it's such an important lesson that I can't iterate enough, is that my mum, while she's a wonderful mum to me, she's also my brother's mum. She's a wife. She's a best friend. She's a grandmother. She's the person who, you know, is always first in in the grocery store or whatever it might be. She's um, somebody who picks up her library books. She's so many different things to different people other than just my mother and even a set of twins can have totally different relationships with their mother whereas when she dies it will be left to me and I would have designed the funeral as my relationship with her that one way just me and her whereas she's so many other facets and that's what's so fascinating and you exactly said it you know the one who changed your diapers the one who picked you up when you cut your knees the one who brought you to school whatever it might be and whatever your relationship is, good or bad with your family, there's still that person who was a teenager once themselves. They were a daughter, a child, you know, a brother, a sister or whatever. 
um, they had a life just like you have a life and it's so important to celebrate that life. It's just, yeah. Oh, Catherine, I could talk to you all, all, all day, <laughs> literally, um, but we are going to have to wind it up. And so, oh my God, please folks go out and get not one, but all of her books and re- just absorb everything. Follow her on social, um, look at the TED Talk. And I mean, Catherine, I would love to have you back maybe another time, maybe when you've written your next book. That would be lovely, wouldn't <laughs> it? That'd still- be lovely. I need to get myself over to New York. We need to do it properly in real life next time. Yeah. You do, you do. And maybe there's some sort of a convention or something we can do together because I just, I really do. And as you said, two sides of the coin, it's just so important, both sides. And it's just, oh, I, I worship what you do. So thank you. Thank you so much for, for being here with us today. Seriously. Jen, thank you so, so much for, for inviting me. And I'm, just I loved that conversation thank you so that was another episode of the Glam Reaper podcast I really hope you enjoyed that as much as I did making it it was such a pleasure and such an honour and such a privilege to have Dr Catherine Mannix on with us um, to talk about all things palliative care and she's just an incredible author and beautiful person inside and out. So please check her out. And hopefully if we do really well with this episode, like and subscribe us and share, we can get uh, Catherine back on again. But until next time, we'll talk to you soon. Ciao for now. Bye.